0: We actually have a guest speaker today. He is uh, an elder from Redemption Gilbert. He's a dear friend, and and listen, I just have to say this about about him and the work that that a lot a lot of men like Neil that have gone way before us in Redemption. Redemption Flagstaff. You guys, don't, I don't know if you don't remember. Today's our seven-year anniversary. Which, yay, that's great. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, pretty exciting that God let us get to seven years. We literally would not exist if it wasn't for the work and the people that have gone before us uh, in East Valley Bible Church and some of the churches that came together to form Redemption in 2011. Neil has been an integral part of that, and he's here to preach to us today from the book of Exodus. Will you guys please welcome him? Well, good afternoon. No, it's still morning. It feels like the afternoon. afternoon. <laughs> Uh, I, I, one of the things uh, I want to tell you about myself is that I am a, a Jewish believer, a Hebrew Christian, and uh, so I thought to keep within the theme of languages uh, today, I'm going to uh, preach in Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that much Hebrew, sorry. <laughs> now it's an honor for me to, to be with you this morning, and I've been able to watch the growth of uh, Redemption Flagstaff from a couple hours away, and it's nice to be able to be with you. So uh, we're going to look at a, a relatively long passage today. It's Exodus 15 from verse 22 all the way through the end of chapter 17, and it's primarily about three stories that can legitimately be studied together since they're all about Israel's grumbling over their perceived lack of basic elements for survival in the desert. Water and food. Now it's it's not just about their grumbling and complaining. This is about God's tender care for them, despite, despite their grumbling. In each story, Israel has the opportunity to apply their faith to a challenging circumstance, and they fail miserably. But even with the failure, God responds to them with grace. Upon grace. In fact, we'll see in a bit that he reveals two new names for himself to display more of who he is uh, to his people. Now, you remember that God has, has just brought Israel through the Red Sea, protecting them from Pharaoh and his army. That great miracle caused Israel to sing a song of worship. The first 21 verses of of chapter 15 records the beautiful worship service that took place on the eastern shore of the Red Sea as they remembered God's merciful protection for them. That great miracle that God provided caused Israel to sing a song of, of worship. The people rightfully responded to God with singing and and praise. But it didn't take long for them to revert back to their old pattern of, of grumbling and complaining. They didn't expect the road to the promised land to go through the desert. They were good at singing praises to their deliverer, but they were not ready to apply their faith to the ordinary challenges of life. Israel was like a newborn who had come out of the womb of slavery in Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea, and now in the desert, they needed to be shaped into a nation that was more than just singers. They were to live as a blessed people, to be a blessing to the world around them. Can can you see how that is similar to the normal Christian life? We, We celebrate our new life in Christ. We're born again. We've been brought from death to life. Our destiny has literally been changed from hell to heaven. But the reality is the Christian life is lived out mostly in the desert. And they're hard and they're painful experiences. Israel grumbled and complained through most of them. And I think, instinctively, we all know that what was inside Israel, the grumbling, the complaining, the lack of faith, is also inside of us. So I hope today, as we, as we look at Israel's failures and, and God's grace, that we can learn how to not only survive in the desert experiences of life, but but to thrive and to even grow. Israel's first complaint um, came as they traveled to the wilderness of Shur, which was northeast of the Sinai Peninsula. They're running low on water, and they're devastated when they find that the water they get to is is bitter and undrinkable. Let me me read for you uh, verses 15. 22 to 25 in um, chapter 15 of Exodus. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they they could not drink the water of, of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him A log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule and tested them. So, their excitement at finding the water quickly turns to anger at Moses for leading them there. Rather than crying out to God, who had brought them there against all odds, they immediately blame Moses and ask him to get them water. When they were trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh, they, they cried out to God directly, but here they confront Moses and they ignore God. With God's last miracle fresh in their minds, they have another opportunity to trust him, but instead they look for a worldly solution. They expect Moses to handle the problem. Israel had seen God's overwhelming power in the ten plagues, in the parting of the Red Sea, in the drowning of Pharaoh's armies. These gigantic things caused them to sing. But here, God is showing them that he's intimately concerned about every aspect of their life and that they must live by faith in him every step of the way, even in those things that appear to be somewhat small struggles. So Moses, their leader, shows them what they need to do. And it is the first step in surviving in the desert. He prays. Verse 25 says, He cries out to God. One man's prayer does more than an entire nation's complaint. Uh, just draw your attention to, uh, to James, a writer in the New Testament. who's writing to the church and talking about the power of prayer. Chapter 5, verse 16 James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. God responds to Moses' prayer with a miracle. He says, he says take this ordinary log and throw it in the water, and then the water will turn sweet. Now, people want to know, what, what, what kind of log was that? I'd like to have that, that kind of log. Um, But but see, the kind of log is not important. What's important is God took an ordinary log and he turned that which was unhealthy into something that was, was full of health. Now, of course, I'm not saying that every time we pray that God is going to respond with a miracle. But what I am saying is when we go to God in prayer immediately after we are confronted with a problem, It takes our eyes off the mountain that we're facing and puts it directly on the mountain mover himself. And that's why that's such a good place to start when we face the challenges of life in the desert. So that is the first step. If we want to thrive in those desert experiences of life, we need to go to God in prayer. And then in verse 26, God follows up his miracle with a command that includes both warnings and promises blessings, and even in curses. Verse 26, it says, that if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. God is now revealing himself and giving them the very next step in surviving in the desert. And that is that there's more to following God than singing or even praying. We need, we need to listen to his word and obey him. The freedom that they got in leaving Egypt to worship also meant they must obey his word. And he tells them why. He says, I am Jehovah Ropheh. I am the God who heals See, up to this point, they had only seen God's wrath against sin. They they saw him destroy Egypt's crops. They saw him destroy Egypt's livestock. They saw him destroy Egypt's firstborn and even their army. But now, God reveals to them that he is a healer, that he is a restorer of life. Just as he healed the water... When Moses obeyed him and threw that ordinary log into that bitter water and made it sweet, God says, If you will listen to my word and obey my word, then I will I will heal your your bitter hearts. I I will heal your thirst. So so to make the point even more clear to them, he has them leave Mara, which again means bitter and he sends them to a place called Elam. And Elam is a place of healing. He says to them, there are 12 springs in Elam. Well, what he's saying by saying there was 12 springs is there are 12 tribes of Israel, right? So he's saying 12 springs, plenty of water for all of you. And then he says in Elam, there are 70 trees to provide shade. Well, there were 70 elders of Israel. God is saying to Israel, as as their healer, my grace is sufficient for all your needs. I can meet your needs exactly. So the first step in surviving the challenges of the desert for us, of course, is to pray. But the next step is that we need to obey God's word and then see how it applies to our particular life. Or that particular situation or that particular challenge and and do what it says. Uh, back, back to James again. In James chapter one, he he talks about this idea of being a, a doer of the word and not just a hearer. James chapter one, verse twenty-two says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets immediately what he looked like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So here's the, here's the uh, translation of all that. You're getting ready to go out, okay? You take a look in the mirror. Everything looks pretty good. Thank you very much. Um, (Laughter) And you give it a big smile, right? You're looking in the mirror to see how you look and how you're ready for the day. Big old piece of parsley right in your teeth. If you just walk away and leave that parsley there, you're like a person who, the word, this beautiful word, this mirror shows you what your problems are, where you need to make changes in your life. It's right here. You see it and you don't do anything about it. You're like the person who leaves that parsley in his teeth all day long. God says, I'm revealing to you what you need. Just do what it says, just do what it says. So God is continuing to move them, and in chapter 16, the people leave Elam and they move into the wilderness of sin on their way to Mount Sinai, where God leads them right into another challenge. Disappointingly, but but not surprising, the people are once again grumbling and complaining. This time it's not about water, there's no food believe it or not, believe it or not, they actually say, now that they've run out of food, that they would have preferred that God had killed them with the Egyptians rather than to have to endure all that they're currently experiencing. In other words, God, we'd rather have food, we'd rather have slavery and even death rather than your idea of salvation and freedom that includes being hungry and thirsty. They don't think that God's plan of taking them through the wilderness to grow them is working. So how can they possibly trust him to meet their needs? Even though they've already seen a tremendous amount of God's power and provision. Now you want to be frustrated with them, right? I, I'm a, I'm a, I mean, I'm Jewish and I'm frustrated with them. But when you think about it, honestly, when you go from one challenge to the next, it's, it's pretty easy to be frustrated. Uh, as, you know, think about this. Uh, say you're on your way uh, to a job interview, right? It's your third interview. You've nailed the first two. And uh, you're on your way. You know you're going to close the deal. This is the job that you have been looking for. It's going to be perfect. And on your way, boom, flat tire. Oh, my gosh. You're so frustrated. you frustrated. Pull over, and out of nowhere, a wonderful DPS officer is right there. Peeps in your window, says, I'm going to help you fix that tire. We'll get you on your way in no time. Bang, your tire gets fixed. You're thrilled. God, you are so great. Thank you so much for providing that officer to help me. You get to the interview. You're looking good. You're feeling good. You get in there. You sit down. The receptionist walks over and says, Oh, Neil, I'm sorry. I wanted to try to get in touch with you before, but we couldn't. Um, we've decided to go in another direction and hire someone else. You know, politely you say, yes, thank you very much. And you walk out and say, God, how could you let this happen to me? God understands. He is showing us right here that he understands that kind of frustration. He understands that kind of complaining that we feel as human beings. So as this passage goes along, it doesn't concentrate on Israel's complaining and grumbling, nor does it demonstrate God's punishment of them. In fact, it's just the opposite, because God knows us, he knows his people, and he only wants what's best for us, he continues to provide for them. Back to chapter 16, uh, verses 4 and 5, this is after they said, we'd rather be dead, God, than be with you. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Without anger, without punishment, God once again provides what they need. But again, because he knows what they need more than just the food or the water, is for them to grow in their understanding of who he is, he adds a test in there. He says, I want you to only grab as much bread as you need for that particular day. In in verses 13 and 14, his provision is, is described. It says, in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was a fine... Uh, There was on the face of the wilderness A fine flake-like thing Fine as frost on the ground This miraculous provision By God of meat And of bread For a hungry people Quail at night Bread in the morning Now in verse 15 The the bread is described Uh, It's uh, something that, that they had never seen So the Israelites kind of look at each other And they're going, hey, what is it? Well that's the Hebrew word manna means what is it and that's what it's called <laughs> very creative but but it's clearly another miracle god is providing for them again in verse 16 moses tells them only take a daily supply he tells them to take what they need and gather it in small bowlfuls just enough for each person in their family the funny thing is if they try to take more they'll only be enough for them. If they take less, they'll still be enough for the whole family. Again, it is clear that God is the one who provided what they needed to eat. It came directly from Him. Yet, some of them actually disregard God's command and try to keep some of it for the next day. And those that do find out that there are always consequences, always consequences for disobeying a direct command of God. If they keep it overnight It becomes worm-infested and unedible. They must obey the Lord in order to get their daily bread. The manna is a gift from God, but they must collect it according to his word. And here's the third step for surviving in the wilderness, surviving in those challenges of life. It is that it is not the amount of bread that we have that should be our first priority. It is knowing and trusting God to provide, and looking to him first. This point was so important uh, for Israel to understand that Moses later on in their desert wanderings in the book of Deuteronomy actually uh, gives a commentary on this particular situation. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, talking about what's happening right here, right now, in Exodus 16, he says, And he humbled you, and let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus said it very similar in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then these things will be added to you. What is most critical for us as God's people, and what was most critical for Israel, was not how full their bellies were, but how much they trusted God and how well they knew Him. God hears the cries of His people. He provides for them with patience and with mercy and with grace because He wants them to see and know the greatness of His love. He wants them to see His kindness. He wants them to know that he's just not their deliverer and redeemer, that he's their provider, and that they would find their ultimate satisfaction in knowing that they're his, even when their stomachs are empty, even when they're thirsty. Guys, we can thrive in the desert challenges of our life when we desire to first and foremost know this God who is not just a healer, a deliverer, a provider that he provides with incredible grace. And, and in fact, when he's ready, uh, in, the, in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 3, verse 20, that God gives abundantly more than we can even think or imagine. It's his lavish grace that we need. Uh, I think if you, if you need to be convinced, I hear all the time as a, as a Jewish believer, oh, well, the God of the Old Testament, you know, he's a God of anger, and the God of the New Testament, he's a God of love and grace. If you want to be convinced that God of the Old Testament is a God of grace, you just need to look at this story here, at the way that God responds to this grumbling, complaining, unappreciative people with grace. He is growing Israel through the trials of the desert so that they might learn to pray, They might learn to believe his word and follow it. And that is what his desire is for them. And his agenda for us is the same. That we would take our focus off of those challenges of the desert life and put our focus directly and clearly on him for our good and for his glory. And and then even as a further act of grace and as another test... God's going to give him a day off. See, Pharaoh made him work every single day. But God says, no, I'm going to let you rest on the seventh day. You gather enough on the sixth day, and even though every other day, if you tried to keep it over, it's going to go bad, if you keep it over on the sixth day, there'll be enough for the seventh day. But you got to trust. Believe it or not, some actually go out and try to gather stuff on the seventh day. Verse 28 and 27 and 28 say, they went out there looking for it, and of course, there wasn't any. Once again, their disobedience is a simply a lack of trust. It, it says, God, I don't believe that you're going to provide for me. Now, it, it's not just the grumbling and complaining that's a problem. When we fail to trust God, it it leads to all kinds of wrong behavior. My very first job uh, after college, real job, was in sales. I was selling tools, cutting tools and hand tools and supplies to local machine shops in the Boston area. And uh, I was basically, I had a very small salary and I was basically on commission. So, I would make money basically if I made sales. Now, when you work with machine shops, they were in a, usually in a very crush kind of crisis mode. If they broke a tool, they had to stop work. They needed to get that tool right away. So, I'd go in as a salesman and say, Hey, is there anything you guys need? Well, yeah, you know, I just broke a three quarter inch two flute double N end mill. Do you have one? I didn't have one, but I lied. I lied. I said, Yes! I wanted the order. Uh, I didn't believe that if I was truthful, God would provide for me. You see, when you don't trust, you start doing things that you shouldn't do, and that's exactly what I did. I didn't believe that God, if I was honest with that guy, and didn't get that order, that if I didn't go to the next stop, and there would be another order waiting for me if I would just, if I would just trust him. You see, God is so faithful to his people that they were able to eat that manna in the wilderness for 40 years. Every single day it was there. We can remember that. And interestingly enough, that's what God says is the next step for surviving in the challenges of the desert, and that is to remember. It is to remember all the things that God does. In chapter 16 and verse 32, Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded let an omer of it, the manna, be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses was to keep a couple of quarts of this manna in a jar and to keep it with them throughout all of Israel's generations. It was to become a national memorial of God's provision and the abundance of his grace, reminding them that you can trust him in every challenge. Those jars of manna reminded Israel for generations that God was always with them. God wanted his people to never forget that his grace is sufficient, that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. It's why the people were told to celebrate Passover, so they would remember God's great act of redemption. It is why we celebrate communion every week, so that we will remember God's great act of of saving us. And, and when we take this, this bread and, and this cup, it also reminds us that, of God's provision. That God not only saves, he sustains those who he saves. In, in chapter 17, um, we have the next step in Israel's growth uh, in knowing God. He, he recognizes that they're still not there yet. So they leave and go to a place called uh, Rephidim. Uh, and you would hope at this point that things are getting better, right? Look at all they've seen. God provided sweet water where that was bitter. God provided food where there was none. And now they come to a place and there's no water. And this time, which we read about it at the beginning, this time, again, they attack Moses... They say to God, You're just not providing for us. It got so bad that Moses names the place Mirabah and Masah, which means quarreling and testing. They're not quarreling with Moses, they're testing God. And you know, um, when you take a test, it's to determine whether you're, you're capable. Right. If, if you're in the nursing program right now, before you get the RN designation, you're going to have to pass the board. You're going to have to take a test to say that you're capable to have those initials next to your name, RN. If you hope to go to law school, you're going to have to pass the bar. You're going to have to take a test that says you are capable to stand before the court as a lawyer. Israel is testing God and saying, you are not capable of caring for us. You are not capable of providing for us. They were still focused on the painful situations and not on the God of grace who had provided for them. Yet God continues to bless them. He is like a parent with a small child as he works to shape his people into a a nation that will truly worship him. So once again, God responds with grace he instructs Moses to do three things he says i want you to go ahead of the people i want you to take the elders with you and i want you to take the staff of god that you have had with you since the beginning and i want you to go to the rock of horeb where god tells him he's going to stand on the rock before them and moses is to strike that rock with that staff and enough water will become pouring out to satisfy all of Israel's need. Rather than judging this people for their sin of unbelief, God, who is standing on the rock, symbolically submits himself to judgment as that rock is struck so that out of him, life-giving water will flow to his people. It's just as Jesus was struck with divine judgment to give us eternal life. Here for the third time, God graciously provides for his people. And even after this third miracle, God knows that the people still need to know more. So he offers another test. And this one's different than the first three. The first three tests, God has led them right to those tests. This time it comes to them. While they're at Rephidim enjoying the water that God just provided them, the Amalekites, a a nomadic tribe that lived in the Sinai Peninsula, uh, makes an unprovoked attack against them. And I would imagine that Israel expected God to just kind of sweep in and and sweep out the Amalekites like he had done uh, to Pharaoh and his army. But because God is testing them, because God is growing them, because God wants them to learn more, he said, no, this time I'm going to have your leaders participate in the solution. Look at chapter 17, um, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So as long as, as, as Moses was able to hel- hold up this this staff of God, Israel prevailed. It was clear that although Aaron, Her, Moses, and Joshua were participating, it was God that was supplying the power. Because when those hands went down, Amalek would start to win. What God is showing them here is that as they get to know him, they need to move forward they need to take action as they, after they pray, after they know what he has to say, after they learn more about him and about themselves. Move forward. Get in line with him and go in that direction as he provides the power. There is a balance in the Christian life between waiting and depending upon God and moving forward and taking action. And then after, after the victory, God tells Moses to build an altar. And he says, I want you to call this altar, The Lord is My Banner. That's Jehovah Nisi. That's God revealing another name for himself. God revealing more about himself to his people. A banner reminds the troops of their identity and their strength. It keeps their bearings and it gives them hope as long as it's flying. For Israel, it was a commemorative symbol of God's protection, God's power, and God's presence for them in those challenges. Those altars in the Old Testament were memorials to the activity and the power of God on behalf of His people. When we, when we as God's people, are satisfied in Him first and foremost... When we trust his provision, even if it isn't exactly what we want, when we can rest in his presence, we become the living memorials of the one true God. When we believe that God is our provider, that God is our healer, that God is our banner, and that makes a difference in how we deal with the challenges of life, it makes an incredible impact on the world around us. I got to see this in in real life just a couple of weeks ago. We had two tragedies at at Redemption Gilbert. We had one of our staff members lose a son to suicide, and we had a 15-year-old girl killed uh, while she was riding a bike. Um, And both services, the families stood up and acknowledged God's goodness in the midst of that tragedy and that God's strength was with them and his presence was what was sustaining them it said so much to those who didn't know God of his power and his provision and his grace and that's what happens when we live like that in the challenges that God brings us through he's going to take us through challenges but he's going to be there to provide and to heal and to show his grace. And when we live like that makes a difference, the world around us will see him and give him glory. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your provision in the desert challenges of life, that you never leave us, that you never forsake us, that you are there for us. For our good and for your glory so that when we live a different life because of you, that a dark and thirsty world around us gets to see who you are. And I pray that that would happen. In Jesus' name, amen.